Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. and freedom will be defended. You're listening to part two of my chat with former West Midlands Police Sergeant Matt Trott. If you haven't listened to episode one, I highly recommend you pausing this episode and listening to that one first. In this episode, Matt talks us through the moment he was badly hurt whilst policing a football match, an injury which would later force him to exit from policing and a life on the front line. All this and more next on Protect and Serve. So five years of deployments, doing this work across the UK, you move back or you return to more conventional police work as a detective with covert policing, and you joined a dedicated source handling unit. Now, these are you know very sensitive areas of work. There's limited detail that you can provide us on, on some of these areas, but the dedicated source handling unit is... I'm going to assume the central point for information coming in pertaining to an investigation or operation or intelligence where you're managing individuals who are giving information which could lead to the serious convictions of major criminals, not only within your own geographical area, but right across the UK. Was that just a natural transition from you from that test purchasing world into an area where you're used to dealing with these individuals and now you're managing these, these people that you've had some level of interaction with in a covert manner is it was what was what was the move like into into source handling it felt like quite a natural move because as an undercover officer you are actually a covert human intelligence source 
you are a chiz um, and you are set rules and boundaries that you would set to a chiz as well. Um, so at the beginning of an undercover deployment, you're read certain rules about what you can and can't do. And your training reflects all that. It's all to do with the human rights and yeah. agent provocateur or entrapment, as they would say in some countries. Yeah. Um, so it's very similar. So you have been that cheers. So when you start managing the cheers, you kind of understand what they're going through. So you understand yeah. that they have, the, you know, that gut feeling, that whole twisted feeling in your guts when they're in a situation where they think they're going to get compromised. You've been there, so you can empathize with them. Um, some of the skills, some of the skill sets um, are very similar. So if you think, if I'm getting a, a, a human intelligence source to meet me somewhere, I have to put them through a process of what we call dry cleaning. So they'd have to have a form of surveillance on them as they as they went through certain checkpoints, say in a city centre, we'd walk them from a train station um, through a number of different areas, get them to wait on a square somewhere, then move them through some other alleyways and stuff just to see if anyone's following them. Um, wow. We'd have to give them a cover story as well. Why are you in Why are you in the middle of Birmingham today? You live in this area. I saw you in Birmingham. What were you doing there? Mm. You know, we give them a cover story that they were going to see someone about a job, um, and some sort of uh, health sort of check maybe. You know, give, give them some sort of cover story for them to be in a certain place. And then the key to things like both being a good undercover officer and being a good uh, source handler is that you need to be a good investigator. So being a good investigator, you know what evidence you're looking for and what opportunities you're looking for. Um, uh, so you can task that individual to find those things out. Uh, so having those previous skills as a good thief taker, as an undercover officer, it makes you ideal to work in that environment. I assume there's occasions when you've got to pull these sources out and because there's a couple of key points for me. There's a couple of key things I think about with human sources is A, validating what they're telling you because how do you deal with sources that are lying to you because that must be a major factor of the information they're providing you is are they leading you up the garden path or down a rabbit hole where you're not going to get information? How do you deal with the lying part first? Yeah, okay, so um, when you recruit a source, um, you'll be looking at their motivations and their background. Uh, we're not going to believe everything they say straight away. So number of different motivations. I couldn't probably list every single human motivation to do something. And some of them will cross over. So it could be greed. It could be revenge. Um, it could be a sense of public duty, perhaps. Or it could be the police have done such a great job for me in the past. Remember, my family was killed and they did such a great thing. I want to pay them back by doing this. Mm, yeah. You know, we have that sort of motivations do come out a lot. Um, but what we do is we um, put any in, in information that they give us, because it's not intelligence yet, it's information. So we need to put that through a process. And that process will be sort of, we'll check against other information and intelligence. Um, and we'll put it at a lower level, let's say. Um, it's graded, intelligence is used graded. So we won't rush in. And as soon as the first thing they tell us oh yeah this is a1 intelligence we want a warrant we're going to go and smash this door in we test them we probe them with questioning and we build up a period of trust um uh, well you know you can't just accept what they're saying straight away so you send them off you give them a few tasks 
you'll test it against other information coming from other sources and that's how you build up that level of trust what do you do when you find out they're lying to you is that them done you dump them you've got you've got to dump them confront them and dump them say you've been lying to us mate you ain't getting paid um we can't trust you you're still safe we're never going to tell anybody that you've been a source because it's our duty to protect people um and then you send them on their way just cut them loose these periods of your policing career in um the test purchasing life and then in the um covert human intelligence source handling are they, are they are they stressful periods of your life in terms of looking after the welfare of individuals and trying to crack some of the biggest cases that are out there? Um, yeah, you, the welfare of the individuals, especially sources, are is paramount, it, and it runs continually through the through the theme. I, I think historically, that in that world, um, back in the dark old days of the seventies and eighties, and even probably before that, sources were abused, um, and they also they almost became friends with some of the detectives that were running them. It wasn't, it was like the wild west. It wasn't properly managed. You know, they'd sit in the pub drinking with them and getting the information from that way. And uh, there's been stories of corruption where 300 pounds were supposed to be paid to a source, but they split it with the cops because they thought that's how things worked because on the street, that is how things work, but police officers shouldn't be taking them backhanders, you know, off the back of their, of the source's payment. But then you, do you get the other side, which is more of a goodwill sort of um, uh, corruption from the source, for example? Um, I had an example of, of one guy. He he was working in this specific area that I covered, and I asked him to uh, find out about an, a heroin dealer. And he says, well, to tell the truth, mate, he says, the only way I can do that is if I go back on the gear. And I'm happy to do it. I'll go back on the gear and go and see him and buy heroin. I was like, no, mate. You can't do that. That's totally unacceptable. We're not yeah. going to do that. Um, you know, you've got family to look after. The, the one thing we're never going to do is ask you to go back on the drugs. And he's like, no, no, it's not a problem. I'll do it. No. At that moment, he obviously reported that to our um, controller. And the controller was like, right, we're pulling him. So we, we stopped any activity with him at that point. Um, he was a really good source, a, a long-term really good source. And he was trying to please us. And that's not... That's not the aim of the game. He's not there to please us. He's there to do a, a proper job. And so we got him in for a meeting. We set up a meeting and with the controller there, the source controller, and uh, we had to reread him all his terms and conditions and redo all of his taskings and everything. Wow. And we, we said, look, mate, we, we, we're not going to get you to take drugs again. It's more, we'd rather have no information. Mm. Just, you know, this think around the box, how, you know, this guy had been amazing. He'd done some really big jobs with us over the years. And um, there's no way that, you know, you do build relationships with people. And there's no way we was going to see somebody go back onto heroin just to give us information about a low-level smack dealer. It's just not not really going to happen. Were there any incidences where you've had a source blown, which then puts their, their safety and welfare in jeopardy? We are, the only one I can think of was uh, there was one guy. He, uh, I think he liked the image of being a source. I think he thought it was a movie, and yeah. uh, we only had him for a couple of weeks. He wasn't there for long, and he turned up. We'd done a warrant on something that he told us, and he turned up for a meeting. Black eyes was like, what happened? And all the lads thought it was me that crashed on him, so they so they gave me a kick in. I was like, well, where did they get that from? We'd found out afterwards 
on the operational team that did that warrant. That he was there talking to him at the um, at the warrant, basically telling the cops that it was him that given the information. Um, and we do try and reinforce him that they can't do this. You know, they can end up being killed, um, yeah. and their families being targeted. You know, the, it takes a long time for the cops to come sometimes, and uh, they we're not always going to be there at a drop of a hat for you. So you, you've got to think of your own personal safety. Um, and yeah, well, as a result of that, he was just too hot to handle. He couldn't be trusted um, with his own safety. So we, as much as we wanted the information from him, we, we couldn't run him as a source. We said, look, you've got our number. You can call us at any time if there's any problems. If you need um, some help, give us a shout. We're always going to be here to help you because, you know, ultimately we've put you in this situation. Um, and uh, we never heard from him again, but... Uh, you know, we, we couldn't handle that risk, that level of risk which he was putting on to us because if they think he's a source, they're going to follow him. They could identify us then, and then it's a, a risk to us and whole, our families. Whole operation's blown. Yeah, exactly. And, and as you say, your family's safety. So after this period of, of, of your career, um, promotion led you away from West Mids and you became a sergeant in Leicestershire. And uh, although you're a detective, you had to start from scratch. It took you a few years to gain that status of a DS. What was it like moving forces? Is that a smooth transition? What's the challenges that you face in, in progression and, and moving sideways into a different force? Well, coming from a large metropolitan force to a local county force um, mm. has challenges of its very own. You've got a very uh, small force so you know like the, the time of it was only about three thousand people in leicestershire police there, there was four or five times that in west mids um and to come from somewhere where there's so much going on as in uh low low level crime street crimes you know robberies all that sort of stuff going on all the time to go to a county force um was, was a bit of an eye-opener you know, when yeah. I first got there, I saw the, job, the, uh, the command and control job board in front of me and it said sheep on the road. I knew I'd landed in an alien environment. <laughs> in, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, don't get me wrong, Leicestershire has a number of diverse communities. It has a large city centre, um, which replicates basically what Wolverhampton was as well. The different um, uh, sides of it, the la levels of violence and unemployment and drug addiction, uh, but it's surrounded by lots of countryside. Um, but it did actually remind me when I first got there of moving to Sanford, as in the police exams, Sanford, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, ev everything happens. You've got an airport, you've got a motorway, you know, so you could have an aircraft down, you could have um, a massive crash on the motorway. Um, everything happens. You know, more recently we had the... Uh, the chairman of Leicestershire Football um, Club um, killed in a helicopter crash. You know, there's lots goes on in, in these small counties, um, but it's not as intense as in somewhere like the West Midlands or as vast as somewhere like the West Midlands. And the opportunities for progression are less in the counties as well. I used to have staff complaining to me in Leicestershire about that there was nothing for them to do. They couldn't progress. And I said, well, move forces then. Go to London. Go to Birmingham. You know, that's where it's happening. If you want to do all these sexy jobs, you need to move from Leicestershire because small forces do struggle um, to keep people moving around because there's only so many limited jobs for people to do. It is interesting, though, because, you know, we've 
reflected, although this is a, a million miles away from the UK, we've reflected on the difference between metropolitan policing and rural policing in Australia, because that's where my experiences all are from in terms of the comparisons. And the more rural areas, you generally find police officers have a completely different way of policing because they, they live and work in the communities that they police. They're often, in, in my experience, incredible communicators because of the the locations that they're in and they often build up these very close relationships with the communities they're in and equally their experiences are far more broad because in the metropolitan areas when an incident occurs you've got crime scene detect you've got crime scene investigators you've got homicide detectives you've got all these different specialities and when you move into the more rural areas your local country coppers as we'll describe them often become a jack-of-all-trades in all these areas and specialise in all different bits and pieces. So it's a, t- it's a totally different type of policing, for want of a better description. Would you agree with that? Yeah, most definitely. Uh, West Mids was very much more robust, hands-on, you know, messing me about, mate, you're going on your face on the floor. Simple as that. You know, it was that cut and thrust. You had to. If you didn't grip that crowd, that crowd would take over. So you had to be that robust all the time. Moving to the country, as the sun goes, um, it was <laughs> it was a baptism of fire of its own. I uh, caught one incident uh, in a local, um, small local town. West Mids, we used to drive around with the window open, and we called it the Section 5 window, Section 5 Public Order Act. So you'd be driving along with a group of kids and support, or youths or whatever, and then you'd hear someone gobbing off at you, swearing at you, you're like, okay, that'll do. You'd pull over, herd them up, and... What's the problem then? You'd face them off and they'd normally back down saying nothing officer and walk off or you'd get a prisoner out of it. Um, working here, I, I was driving around, you know, as a sergeant, I just drove around. For me, it was normal to have the Section 5 window open and uh, was driving along and this bloke, um, can I swear on here? I plead, yeah. Go yeah, he's it. like, fucking wanker cops. And I was like, okay, that'll do. Um, so I pulls over, door open. What's your problem, mate? Actually, my door wasn't open. Uh, my window was down. I was like, what's the problem, mate? And he was like, you lot, I fucking hate you. Like, you're a bunch of pricks. I was like, oh, here we go. I was like, and he starts walking towards the car. I was like, oh, hang dear. on, this is a level of um, bravery that I've not seen in a while. Um, and as he's coming towards me, I think, right, well, he obviously wants to play. So swung the car door open, knocking him back. And he started um, fighting me at that point. And I'm like, oh, God, this, this bloke really wants to go for it. So... I'm trying. I'm, I'm pressing for assistance on the radio to get some more troops there, and uh, I've got him held up against this wall. Um, uh, and uh, my backup's 15 minutes away. That that was the reality of it. There's the difference. There's the difference right there. The backup. Yeah, and in some places it's even longer. Your backup's coming. Up. So I could have had three or four people kicking the crap out of me, and nobody's coming. Or they're coming from a long way away, but no fault of their own. They're coming from the other side of the county. So that's the realities of country policing. I um when I was working in rural Australia, my backup was often about two hours away. So, mm. you know, I would you know you, you And you're armed you, there as well though, aren't you? You're armed. Well that yeah, well we are. So the presence of all the different accoutrements from tasers to carrying a Glock and handcuffs and spray and all the rest of it, it obviously we can diffuse situations right up to the most serious. But Equally, you want to try and communicate your, your way out of everything. I, you know, you want to avoid confrontation as much as you possibly can. But like that individual that that, that shouted at you as you were driving past, people just sometimes sadly want to look for a fight, and yeah, um, yeah. those people do exist in society. And and ultimately, 
police do exist to deal with those individuals as best they possibly can. But um, it's a challenge. But it leads on to the next point, which I think is quite an important one in your particular case, because you've always kept very close to operational policing and particularly public order. And, and public order at the moment is front of mind because we have a lot of protests going on in and around London, stopping the M25. It's causing an awful lot of problems. There's been some incredibly distressing stories um, of the Just Stop Oil protests and the impact they're having on the community. Now, not that you've had exposure to those particular protests, but yours are very much in terms of public order and football matches. You've enjoyed that frontline public order role. Tell us about the challenges that presents when you've got a group of men, commonly just groups of men, maybe some women in amongst them, wanting to really go at the other other group of fans and how you keep them separate. And when you have to engage, the conduct and the physicality of that can be really intense. Yeah, it can. Um, obviously, not only football duties, but um, we went through a phase of things like the English Defence League marches and their counter-marches with the Anti-Fascist League and, you know, animal welfare protests. I've done those sort of things as well as, as, well as football. Um, but football... I mean, I'm not a big fan of football supporters um, because when they get together, individually, you can have some of the nicest people in the world. When they get together as a group... Um, mob mentality. Yeah, it, they, do, they do turn into the mob. And somebody who's an absolute most rational person, probably a manager somewhere, just turns into an absolute idiot and tops will be off, arms will be out, giving it come on then. Um, 99% of them don't actually want to fight they just want to look like they want to have a fight. Um, and if you put them in a situation where you put them in a field together, they wouldn't fight. They'd probably go home. Um, but yeah, that mad, they, they, some of them become mad dogs. And uh, it's very testing. If you ever go to a football match, instead of looking at the football, just look backwards. Look at the crowd. That's what I'd say to anyone. Look at the crowd and look at the people around you. You know, there's families, yeah, there's kids. They're having a great time. They're on a family thing. But you, you'll see a certain element of people. And and they just lose it. They just lose their shit. Can't believe it. It is the ugly side of the beautiful game. This is what officers face at football matches every week. They've come to watch a game, but are instead intent on making a scene. It's the start of a major football tournament. Uh, I'm just here for the violence. We're just here for the pushes. If you They're throwing bottles still. I can never understand the mentality. Um, and they're crying when the teams have lost. They're fighting people and... I, I still can't believe it to this day how people behave in football matches. My mind is blown. But going back to the public order side of it, yes, um, I mean, my experience of public order started when I was 17, uh, deployed to Ireland. I wasn't allowed out the streets until I was 18, but I still did all the training. And uh, that all started with being petrol bombed and running around with riot shields around mock-up villages, um, mm. being stoned and bricked and things like that and then actually deploying into Northern Ireland where similar sort of things happened as well um, then joining the police of course you get the basic training working in West Mids we had some major um, uh, Premier League um, football teams there um, uh, some really good ones as well um, 
and Wolverhampton Wanderers. Um, but uh, <laughs> my friends from Wolves will hate me for saying that. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so it, it progressed over the years, just getting used to doing that sort of thing. And uh, if you think about the difficulties, um, for example, say we get two teams, um, like in my example, I got injured, and that's why I had to retire from the police. We have two teams, um, say Leeds and Leicester, will get together, and you'll have a hardcore element. And these are um, gangs of men who um, show allegiance to a certain football team, and their main aim is to cause trouble at the matches between between opposing fans. And they'll turn up with the intention of being bearded up, having some cocaine down them, and wanting to fight or cause problems. Um, so they sort of, uh, we have to police that. We have to build a sterile environment in between them to stop that from happening. Uh, we'll hold some back, let the others leave the area and their coaches, then release our people, um, the local local fans, if you like. Uh, so if we think about this match in 2017 where I got injured. Yeah, um, let's talk about that one. We had to, uh, the, the Leeds and Leicester fans were chucking stuff at each other, being insulting. You know, they were trying to get through the sterile area to each other. So we had to um, uh, put a shock of troops up through the crowd, split them apart. Rian Morris! And Leicester City are on their way to the last eight. A glorious individual goal. To finish off the challenge of Leeds United, surely. we start moving up through the stands now. Anybody who hasn't actually been to a football ground um, uh, or been in that sort of environment, it's very steep, big concrete steps. Um, so you're working uphill towards an enemy, which isn't always a good tactic. Sometimes you're better no. off coming in from the top or, or using some other way of dispersing that crowd. But we went upwards into this crowd, and the fans at the time, or the hooligans at the time, were throwing themselves down the stairs or they were being pushed from behind. So there's that wave of people coming forward towards you. Um, one of them come flying down, impacted into me, um, and I went flying into some chairs that were to my right. Uh, my spine decided to go left, and I ended up getting prolapsed discs in the base of my spine. Uh, obviously, that shocking, horrible pain went through wow. the whole of my body to the tips of my fingers and toes. Um, but... Ultimately, to start with, because of the adrenaline in my body, I didn't feel it as much and carried on with the duty, carried on moving forward, clearing the crowds afterwards. It was only afterwards that I started to feel the the, the pain and suffering that was uh, to end my career, really. It's, it's, it's really very challenging policing public order work. And when you look at the disruption that could be caused, I'm just going to slightly digress here a little bit in terms of what's going on at the moment in the UK with these Just Stop Oil protests. I've lost my job interview because of these lot, yeah. What was your job interview for? For a skip driver. I'm so HGV driver, so I'm HGV. Just shortage of HGVs. Look at this lot. None of them work, they've all retired. Protests can be disruptive. Um, the, the deployment of public order police officers in any particular 
arena, whether it be football or otherwise, is disruptive to the normal flow of cars and, and pedestrian traffic for the reasons of keeping everybody safe, because that's the job of police is to ensure the safety and security of everybody who's in the immediate area. What do you, you, The police are often very tied in terms of how quickly they can respond, how quickly they can remove people. People glue themselves to the road and everything else imaginable, tie themselves. You know, they come up with these elaborate designs of structures to handcuff themselves and padlock themselves. And I saw the other day someone had zip-tied themselves to a rugby, rugby post. You know, just so many different means in terms of ensuring a slow extraction by police because you've got to maintain the safety and the well-being of the individual that's taking part in that. Do you have any thoughts on the highly disruptive protesting of Just Stop Oil who are who are blocking, you know, the M25, an example, and affecting hundreds of thousands of people? You know, are the police responding effectively to these incidents? Are their hands tied? I think the protesters are, are scoring an own goal, almost. They're, mm. Yeah, they're raising awareness of what's going on. Um, which sometimes is the key point, but the way they're doing it is alienating their supporters. There's lots of people who support what they're talking about, what they're doing, but the tactic they're using is alienating them. And, and uh, you know, you, you would have seen it. You would have seen reports of middle-class kids crying and screaming and everything. And most people out there just look at them and think, what a bunch of spoiled idiots. Um, myself included. Um, whereas the, uh, the tactics that the police have to employ to deal with them are so way out that causing these delays for so long rather than just arresting them for obstructing the highway. You know, yes, we have to facilitate um, uh, protest. That's peaceful protest. Doesn't mean that you can block a highway doesn't mean that you can um, attack somebody's property. Um, so the tactics that the police are using at the moment, I think they're, they're, they're starting to get it now. They're starting to, well, we're going to be a bit more robust, not as bad as the French where they just pull a super glued hand off the floor, which I've seen on a video, which is, although quite comical, not really something the British police would ever consider doing. Um, but they're starting to be a bit more, right, we're going to lock you up. And I think today the... Uh, um, uh, just stop oil have announced that they're not going to do any more M25 protests. Um, I think they're starting to get it as well. Police are starting well, to get right, we're going to be robust, and they're starting to get the fact that actually we're alienating ourselves. We're, we're not going to get any support from this. I was listening to a radio show on the BBC, and there was a, a really sad story of a guy that he and his son were the pallbearers at the chap's father's funeral, and they couldn't get to the funeral. And he couldn't say goodbye to his father because of these individuals' decisions to get up onto one of the overhead marker boards, junction boards, whatever they're called these days, and to sit up there, which ultimately led to all four lanes of the M25 being shut. So, you know, really quite selfish acts. But, you know, it's it's the right of an individual to protest versus the rights of hundreds of thousands just want to get on with their lives. Um, and it's um, it's it's a it's a very difficult situation. And and what I fear the most is that this week it's just stop oil. About three or four months ago, it was we weren't doing enough on climate change. It all, it all amounts to the same general issue: climate change. 
and when you right. look at the you, when you look at the UK as as a whole, is doing so much. It's one of the leaders in Europe in terms of reducing emissions and investment in green energy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it's a very difficult issue for the police to handle, and they're doing all they possibly can to to try and minimise the impact with with the legislation and the policies and procedures and the rules that they have to abide by to allow people to do what they can do and and when when they can and can't take action, but. Um, I thought but the people that the protesters need to bring the people with them. They need to bring the media with them. If if they continually just show themselves as sport middle class kids who are crying and spraying stuff all over the place, they're never going to win this battle because the rest of the country no. cannot relate to them. They they need to take the people. They need to take the press with them on that journey. Or the, or, you know, people are just going to switch off from it. They're not they're not going to join in. Well, it's um, it's. Certainly, an interest. It's, 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 it's another podcast in itself, to be honest with you. It is, but, it is. Yeah, we've gone a bit off tangent now. <laughs> but I wanted to, I suppose, just finish up. So sadly, as a result of your public order policing um, enthusiasms and wanting to keep your hand involved in that frontline policing, that's obviously what led to you getting, as you as you explained before, getting seriously hurt and getting through that situation and realizing how bad the injury was and being medically discharged the transition out of policing into the private sector can often be one that can be challenging it's not as easy for some as it is for others um what was that transition like for you because obviously you didn't leave under what you would describe your terms in terms of a retirement date and 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 yours sadly was a bit forced how how was that for you that transition so um, I'm supposed to explain that transition. I'm supposed to be able to finish off with the public order side of it still, is that, you know, I, I love that kind of life. I love that lifestyle. Yeah. I love getting hands-on, getting stuck in. You know, working on public order is probably the closest thing that most people ever get to what would have been ancient hand-to-hand combat. You know, you're there with a shield and a sword, if you like, and people are trying to get to you. To then be um, injured, not being able to do what you would, um, do before and you know at that time I was able to do I was running um, four times a week doing five milers things like that to become injured um, and have that all swept away from me for years um, going one step forward two steps back um, in my health and my well-being um, it was a massive drain on me it really uh, knocked the wind out of my sails it, it, it made me realise how vulnerable I was compared to how before, you know, as a young cop, you thought I was a superhero running in and out of places, cross fences, chasing people down. And then yeah. suddenly be put in that position where I couldn't even walk to the local shop without being in screaming pain. Um, it was a massive, massive change, um, put, putting weight on, um, you know, not being able to engage in um, the fun things that I was doing before and not being able to progress my career. Um, So eventually it got to the point of, uh, it was when COVID first started in uh, April 2022, really. I was coming into work. We were on lockdown. I was coming into work, and um, the only jobs that seemed to be coming on the board, because obviously the burglars were in, the only other people who were driving around were drug dealers. There was no one else out in the streets. Um, So they were easy targets for the cops. But yeah. Um, the uh, the only jobs that were coming in were neighbours snitching on neighbours or um, about having people around they shouldn't have around or people making complaints about being called names on Facebook and things like that. And I, I just thought, oh, this isn't the job I joined to do. I'm not, I'm not policing this. 
I thought, I'm in so much pain and agony every day. I'm trying my hardest to keep this going. Uh, I was living on pills um, the, for the, the doctor had given me, and I just gave up. I was just like, no, I'm not doing this anymore. And uh, when I saw the inspector, I says, I'm going home sick. I've had enough. Um, I'm in so much pain. They're like, oh, okay. No problem. Off I went. Um, year and a half later, I was retired. I was uh, medically discharged. I had, but in that time, I'd had... Um, I'd been on morphine. Uh, I'd had an operation on my spine to relieve the pain, which it did work, thankfully. Um, I'm still on medication now, four times a day, um, just painkillers, wow. really, just to uh, take the edge off. I may have to have another operation um, to remove some more of a disc that's um, bulging into my uh, central nervous system. Uh, but again, it's, I'm in that position now where I'm, you know, I'm. Retired, yes. I'm very lucky that I had a police pension, but it was a pension that I paid into for many years. Mm. Um, and I, I can, I do some part-time work now. I, I do some consultancy work, um, and obviously I've written a book. Uh, but now, well, yes. Let's 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 talk about the book because that's a really important part. Because I think it's always interesting when, as police officers, we we get out. We have so many anecdotes from our careers that it's you know. There's a, a select few who choose to capture them in um, in, in material in the form of a book, and and you did exactly that. Hard stop: a life of violence, crime, and deception. It's an incredibly fascinating read. How long was this project? Are you were you a natural writer? God no. <laughs> my, my my partner Haley at the moment will uh, testify to the fact that she did um, some of the. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll have to add some of the editing on it um i didn't give her everything and uh, the bits i did give her she uh, she she identified any spelling or grammar mistakes um i left school with no qualifications i, I, I was more interested in joining the army than doing exams so i didn't study at all and i got to the point i didn't realize how many ways there were to say two two and there and there and all that sort of stuff i was um yeah not the most talented of writers but having said that, when I joined the police, I had to reteach myself to get through the exams to join. And then over the years, I built built in confidence. Um, you know, I was writing stories every day. I was writing uh, statements from people. So I was extracting from somebody else their story about what happened. And then I'd put that onto paper and that would be presented to court. So I was, I was writing short stories for the last 22 years is the way I look at it. Um, mm. Descriptions, you know. Um, how people feel, the smells, the scenery around them. Um, so statement writing really did help me um, to build this up, uh, you know, my writing skills and abilities that way. And the, was this, this book, was it, was, it a, was it a COVID book? Was this something that you're able to sit down and spend that time during lockdown getting all those thoughts finally down onto paper bit by bit? Well, yeah, I, I know there was a bit of a trend over COVID for people doing that um, to fill their times, but COVID was a byproduct for me. I was already off sick with with my injuries, and I was on on all sorts of medications. And yes, I had vivid dreams about my past and things that happened in my past. And I'd read somewhere that you know, great way of um, dealing with life and stress is, is to write, journaling, things like that. And I thought. I'd, I'd always in the back of my mind wanting to write, wanted to write a book, um, and thought this is the perfect time to do it. I need, I need to get these stories out, get it onto, 
get it onto my computer, get it onto paper, um, and sort of it gave me something to focus on. It gave me something positive to focus on, and that's where I started. And people say, "Well, how do you start? How do you do this?" You just start. You just I just wrote out a plan of the different things I wanted to talk about, yeah. and then just write. And when you first start writing, it's absolute garbage. <laughs> and then you go back, you edit it, and you think, actually, I better not say that. Um, that you know, because in any of my writing, I've not written anything to upset anybody or make anybody look bad, because that's not the sort of person I am. Um, and you think, yeah, best not write about that. Best not write about this. And um, you, you pick what you want to write about, and you just write. Sometimes you might just do two hundred words. Other days, I, I went upstairs into the computer room and I, I, I did a whole day, did an eight-hour writing wow. marathon, you know. Um, so, you know, and I did the Audible as well. I did an Audible version. I, I've not done the voice, so I've got a great guy in called Alan Irving. Uh, I've got a fantastic voice for it. And uh, working through that was as, as rewarding as doing the writing as well. It was really cathartic, the whole process of sitting there, getting your stories down, editing, rewriting, re-recording, you know, working your way through it, it gives you a real focus of what to do, of, of, of you know, the process. And it, it gives your mind something positive, a positive uh, outlet for all those thoughts and, and uh, um, incidents that have happened in your past. I'm going to make the assumption that the book is available in on Amazon and all other publications you know, or publicists. Where can we get, where can we get copies? Yeah, um, it's some people don't like using Amazon, um, uh, so you can get it from your local bookshop, but they'll have to order it in. WH Smiths, Waterstones, all those places have it. I'm trying to get it into airports, so if anyone from the airports listening, hi. Um, <laughs> the the uh, the book, yeah, the main selling point is I did use a, a publisher, uh, Matador Publishing, but. Um, the main thrust, the main sale seems to be going through Amazon because that's where a lot of people buy their books now. And yeah. on Amazon, it's available in print, it's available on ebook, and it's available on Audible. Um, and I really do, I like Audible, um, but some people like print, but uh, that's because I'm not really um, that educated. No, listen, it's been a fascinating 90 minutes of conversation about your 22 years of policing. Wow, it's been that long. <laughs> yeah, we've been chatting a while. You know, it's it, it, fascinating insights into human source intelligence work, into test purchasing, into the early parts of your career in operational policing coming out of the military and the latter part of your service working more rural areas but still keeping your hand in amongst the public order policing really fascinating stuff so on behalf of my team and i we just wanted to say thank you ever so much for your policing service um thank you so much for ever sh for sharing your stories this morning and um we wish you all the best of the luck with the book and your life in a, a post-policing world thank you um thank you for um let me come on today and talk about this There's just one point about the book obviously i've used a pen name uh, rather my own, which is Jack Door. Um, just to reinforce the fact that people are looking for it online, it's Hard Stop by Jack Door. Yeah, Hard Stop, A Life of Violence, Crime and Deception, Jack Door. A fascinating read. I'd encourage everybody to get out there, get a copy, read about more of these incredible stories. And uh, we look forward to speaking to you next time, Matt. Okay, thank you very much. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production, hosted by Oliver Lawrence. 
Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley. Produced, edited, and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. <laughs>